10 or 11 years ago, a, a professor at Harvard and also an acting CEO wrote in a business school journal an article in which he said that the way people are advanced for leadership in the corporate world is lacking. And that there was this, this idea that self-confidence was the leading indicator of whether someone would make a good leader. And he set out to debunk, debunk this and say that is in, in his experience, those with the strongest self-confidence met the deepest demise sometimes. And that a not-so-strong self-confidence was a better tool. Now, not an extremely low self-confidence, said he, because if it's too low, then you can't accomplish anything. But just low enough. Low enough that you accomplish these things. Low enough self-confidence that makes you pay attention to negative feedback and be self-critical. Well, if you have high self-confidence, you don't listen to that because you're always right. A low self-confidence, a lower self-confidence that can motivate you to work harder and prepare more. That you don't just depend on what you already know and the preparation you've always done, but you work harder because you know there's a possibility of failure. And third, a lower self-confidence that reduces the chances of coming across as arrogant or being deluded. Notice how closely he ties those words, arrogant and being deluded. Well, I think we can agree with all of those, but as believers, must, mustn't we say something else? We must talk about our self-confidence only coming from the confidence we have in our God. That, any confidence that we have must stem from our faith, our trust, our dependence in Him. Because when we are living in that way, we may seem self-confident to a lost and dying world. We are able then to use our gifts self-confidently, knowing that they are just that, gifts from God, grace to us. Grace that is intended to build up the body of Christ. Grace that is intended to advance the kingdom. A, a desire for the pursuit of righteousness that advances the gospel and shines the glory of God into the world. Because even these things that this CEO and business professor says, that one might pay attention to negative feedback and be self-critical, even if you have a low self-confidence and it's not based in a trust in God, it's still based on your self-confidence or whether that criticism should be listened to, whether it's valid criticism, what you should do with that, or to motivate you to work harder and prepare more. If you're confident in yourself, you're the judge of that. And your motives can be all crazy and messed up and not bring any glory to God at all. Isaiah's been telling us about a world that is all mixed up because sin is in it. But that has a God who's working grace and mercy according to his plan within that fallen world. If you remember where we've been in Isaiah, you can turn back here to 50, chapter 50. No, you can turn back here to chapter 56. I'm not going to read all this. I'm not going to preach it all, but I want you to have your eyes in your text. Because remember, chapter 56 and 57, and even into chapter 58, fall into this one unit, especially chapters 56 and 57. Because what did we find in chapter 56? In chapter 56, we find the character of the Lord, the one who keeps justice and do righteousness, 
and his salvation that will still come. And he says there is a blessed man within the world. And this blessed man is the one who keeps the Sabbath and who trusts in the Lord. And then we are told that God is up to something bigger. God is building a family, remember? And that includes the outcast, the foreigner, the eunuchs. And he says that those, those who are formally outcast of the public worship with, of Israel without coming to Israel and being a proselyte, God is gathering them as well. He's gathering them from everywhere. And there is no limitation on who God will, will, will grant into his family. It's all based on their response to him. How do they respond to his revelation? And he says in verse 8, the Lord, Yahweh, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him beside those, al besides those already gathered. Now, in the flow of the second part of Isaiah, all of this is based on the work of the suffering servant, right? Chapter 52 into chapter 53, that fourth servant song, where we find out that it was the will of the Lord to crush the servant. In order that, the strangers, the foreigners, the eunuchs, those in Israel, those outside of Israel who would come submitted to the word of the Lord, trusting in him, finding their refuge and their rest in him, they would be brought into his family. But the reality is there's sin in the world. So look back at the last four verses of chapter 56. Remember, we learned that the world now can produce leaders that are evil. They're supposed to be on watch. They're supposed to be shepherds. They're supposed to be watchmen. But they're, they're caught up in their own idolatry. And, and we learn very quickly, we come from the high of what God intends to do in chapter 56, verses 1 through 8, and then we move to chapter 59, and all the beasts of the field and the beasts of the forest are invited to come and feed on God's people because there's sin in the camp. And the watchmen, they, they're not doing their job. They're blind. They don't have any knowledge. And we talked about that being both a, a physical watching, like the all nations would have watchmen out on their wall to make sure that they were watching out for uh, attacks on them, but also looking for those who would bring good news of a foreign battlefield. But this, also, this primarily had a spiritual connotation to it, that these leaders were supposed to be guarding the people, keeping sin outside the camp and keeping everybody's focus on the Lord. But they were asleep. The watchmen they're blind, they don't have any knowledge, they're, they're supposed to be attack dogs on the wall, but they're silent, they cannot bark, they're lazy, they're sleeping, but they have mighty appetites and all they care about is satisfying their own appetites. The same group of people begins in the middle of verse 11 as shepherds, and they don't have any understanding. They've turned to their own way, and remember, we found that to be an important phrase, right? The suffering servant comes and does his work because all we like sheep have gone astray. Every one of us have what? Turned to their own way. So these, the, the, the people who are in charge of making sure that the word of God stays center are asleep and they're caring about nothing but themselves. The shepherds don't care about anything about, but self-indulgement. And they think about if they just live today and get away with it tomorrow, will surely be even better yet. But then we learned about what life in God's city, the world, looks like for those who are what, what lost people being in charge, people who hate God being in charge, and the people who hate God within the world, the damage that they can cause because they are idolaters. They trust in one place, themselves. They have one desire, to meet their own needs. 
Now, the first thing we learn about this world in which we live, look at chapter 57, the righteous one perishes. The kessid person, the covenant faithful person, the, the ESV says devout men are taken away. And no one pays attention. The language here is important. We'll see it again today. No one lays it to heart, the second phrase of 57.1. So God is taking the righteous out of the world. Now, he's giving them rest. They're, they're laying down in peace because they have been following God. They're not righteous on their own account. They're righteous because they're, they're living for God, and God has drawn them to himself, and they are waiting on, in the Old Testament sense, waiting on this messianic Messiah to come to deliver them spiritually. But the lost world doesn't even take notice of that. Righteousness is ebbing out of the world. Things seem to be going from bad to worse because God is judging the idolatry of the world. In verse 3, he calls them all together. And he calls them some pretty unfriendly names that represent who they are. He says, draw near, verse 3, sons of sorcerers, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. And he accuses them of, of mocking him, of mocking him and sticking their tongues out and open their mouth against him. And then he goes on to call them children of transgression, offspring of deceit. Now these are the people that should be saying, you're my children. I have called you, and yet their lives are sinful because they've rejected their God. Then verses 5 and following, he just clearly lays out their idolatry, and he places their idolatry everywhere, under the trees, in the valley, on the mountains. It's sexual idolatry and immorality that leads to that, and it is their dependence on foreign kings. He brings that all in no uncertain terms, and then he challenges them. Who are you dreading? Verse 11, who were you fearing so that you lied? You proved to be a liar. You didn't remember me. All you remembered was yourself. You feared men. You tried to do what you thought would satisfy you. In the words of our opening illustration, you were way too self-confident. And so what does he say? On the day of judgment, verse 12, I would declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. He'll expose them as being not righteous deeds. And on that day, they have nowhere to call. All they can do is call their collection of idols. And that collection of idols will be carried off like the wind. Even a breath will take them away. But we weren't just left there, were we? If you haven't been following, look back at your text in verse 13 of chapter 57. The last two lines. Isaiah has done this from the very beginning, hasn't he? He has weaved together judgment and hope, judgment and hope, judgment and hope, all the way through for 57 chapters, and he will continue to do that. And these last two lines, but in opposition to those who will stand on their own righteousness, which is no righteousness at all, and their idols will not be able to deliver them, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So the one who takes refuge in Yahweh places their trust in him, their faith in him, trust in what he is doing in the world. They will, according to the Old Testament language, you possess the land, which means they'll be in the new heaven and new earth, eternity with God, and shall inherit my holy mountain. And in this Old Testament language, as always has been in Isaiah, the holy mountain is where God dwells. And the whole thing has been about God setting the pattern for the people to come dwell with him and him to dwell with them. And they have to be pursuing him. And he will deal with their unrighteousness. 
And so those that rest in him have eternal life in his presence forever. Now that is important to bring us up to where we are because we've talked about God making his family and then we've talked about what the world looks like when those who are not part of his family are in control of things and sin has entered the camp. But it's also an encouragement to those who are part of the family that God is in control of this as he rescues them from the evil and gives them their rest even if it is in death. But there's something else going on because God is always working. Even in the midst of the chaos, God is working. Stand, if you will, and we'll read our text for this morning. Beginning with those last two lines of verse 13 in Isaiah 57. He who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, or better, lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint, with, for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. But the wicked, the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt, for there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The grass withers and the flower falls, you may be seated. So what we see in these few verses is that we are promised that the righteous ones who take refuge in Yahweh will receive three blessings, but the wicked ones will receive no peace. We are promised that the righteous ones who take refuge in Yahweh will receive three blessings, but the wicked ones will receive no peace. The first blessing, the righteous ones who take refuge in Yahweh receive the blessing of God himself. And first of all, this God is a God who prepared their way to peace. Look at verse 14. Now remember, all of this is verse 13 in those last two phrases, 13 D and E. Those are the transition verses. Actually, the whole verse is, but we're focused here on those last two phrases, those who take refuge in God. Those who take refuge in God are the ones that are part of his remnant. They are the ones who receive the blessing of life. They are the ones who receive grace and mercy, even though they're yet sinners. 
And this is a great Old Testament passage to teach us of that gospel, but it also brings it to us in a way that the gospel that we're saved by, we are sinners, we are in need of reconciliation with God, and because we're sinners, we have no part with him, and we will stand in judge, he will stand in judgment over us. But God has sent his son to live and die and be raised from the dead and be seated at his right hand, so all that repent of their sin and believe in him will have eternal life. That's found right in here. But that same gospel is how we live every day. We live every day repentant, trusting in God and his finished work in Christ because we are those who have had grace set upon us and we will spend eternal life with him. Both of those are present in our Old Testament text. This is the God who prepared their way to peace. Look at verse 1. And it shall be said, now we don't know who's saying it. This could be God himself. This could be the prophet speaking for God. This could be the suffering servant. Remember, often we've seen the servant break into our picture and it's his words that we are hearing. We don't know, but there is a command. Build up, build up. So it's repeated. So what, what, is our, what does our uh, hermeneutical principle tell us? This is something that's important, right? In the whole Testament, when something is repeated or the few times it's said three times, we know there's emphasis build, being put on this. So build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstacle from my people's way. Now that tells us who's speaking, but we don't know if it's Yahweh or if it's his chosen one or if it is Isaiah speaking for him. But the command is clear. Build this highway up. It should be built up. It should be visible. It, I think I've used this illustration when we were in chapter 40, but we used to live in Illinois. And in central Illinois, it's flat. I mean flat. The mountains in Illinois are the overpasses that go over the interstate. That's the high point, right? Those of you who live in or are from Illinois or been there know what I'm talking about. It's visible. You can see it from a long way away. The road is to be built up. This is something that's available to all people, talking about the salvation of God. Now, we need to wrestle with what we've seen in Isaiah already. Where does this, this phraseology of, of building up, preparing the way, removing the obstruction or the obstacles from my people, what does that remind you of? Chapter 40. Remember when we changed gears in Isaiah? Keep your finger in 57 and go back to Isaiah 40. This is the, the, the major turning point in the, the book of Isaiah. And we have this picture introducing us to the servant and what the servant will do. Verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. So in that sense, in chapter 40, the way is being cleared for the servant to come, 
right? That's the picture. The way is being cleared for the suffering servant to come because this is God's will. God has spoken it. God the Father, Yahweh, has spoken it, and it will happen. And we're reminded in different places of, in Isaiah, phrases like the zeal of Yahweh will do this. But in here, we have a different kind of leveling, don't we? We have a different kind of leveling. This is the command to build up the roadway to salvation, to the suffering servant. The servant has already come. So what are we to make of this? Well, I want you to take a look with me. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. So the first thing we want to see is God is speaking about his people, the ones he is drawing to himself. He's talking about the people that are his, especially in the light of this second section, major section of Isaiah, that we're talking about those physically who are the remnant returning, who represent the spiritual remnant, that those are the ones who turn to God for rest. So that's who this command is for. It's the, to clearing the way for the ones God is calling to come to his son. But this word obstruction in the ESV, I want you to turn to chapter 8. Keep your finger in 57 and turn to Isaiah chapter 8. That chapter we were in 16 years ago, well, not quite 16, maybe two, one year and nine months, maybe. The only other place Isaiah uses this Hebrew word is right here in this section. We're going to start in verse 11. We always want to keep things in context. Isaiah 8, 11. For Yahweh spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But Yahweh of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Now, this is exactly what the people in our last uh, passage of Scripture did not do, right? They did not fear or dread Yahweh. Verse 14 and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. That's our word for obstacle. To both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, steal the, seal the teaching among my disciples. I, says Yahweh, will wait for Yahweh, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Now notice that it is God himself who is both, in verse 14, a sanctuary. He's a sanctuary to those who place their faith in him, who find their rest in him. But he is also, for those who decide not to do that, he is also a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. The same word for obstacle in our verse in chapter 57. He's a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And those who stumble on it, they're falling and be broken and they shall be snared and taken. So turn back to chapter 57. And I'm posing to you that the obstacle that is being removed is the obstacle of unbelief. It is the obstacle of lack of faith in God. Because now the obstacle in that passage for those who would not believe in Christ was God himself. 
And then we have this miraculous change in chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through 53, where everything leading up to that is pointing us to the Messiah, the one who will come, be crushed by God because it was his will, and provide life for his people, dying in their place as a substitute. So in Isaiah's day, that is yet future. And so it is the command, prepare the way, the Messiah is coming. And now you, your job is to follow the road that I've cleared and turn your faith to me. So that's what we're seeing here. God has done this. God is the one who's prepared their way to peace. And that's where we end up, is peace. Peace in chapter, in verse 19 at the end of this chapter. And God has done this for his people. And I hope you're seeing right now, we are serving a sovereign God. Yes, he is in, if God is sovereign, he is control of everything. You're not sort of sovereign. You're not sovereign on Monday through Friday, sort of sovereign on Saturday and take Sunday off. You're always sovereign. You are always in control. You are always the authority. You are either sovereign or you're not. And so salvation, even in this verse we see it being set up, this is the work of God. He is the one who grants the mercy of salvation. He is the one who sends his son to do the work. He is the one who draws his people to himself. Well, it's not only the God. We're not taking, only taking the refuge in Yahweh and receiving the blessing of him as the one who prepared our way to peace, but also, look in verse 15, it's also the blessing of God himself who is transcendent and who is eminent. Now, those are maybe fancy words. I don't mean them to be fancy, but these are wonderful theological words to talk about the fact that God is other. He is outside of us. He is outside of his creation. He is other. He is, he is beyond our understanding, but he is also eminent. He's also close. He also draws near to some people. And so both of those are brought here. This is such a sweet picture of the character of God and the way biblical theology, this is the direction of biblical theology. God has created man, and he created man in the garden, and Adam, and Adam fell, put sin through the whole human race, and the rest of the storyline is God pursuing a people for himself, providing the way to them. Because he is far off, he is, in, he is the sovereign one in control of his creation, but he is also close to those whom he loves. Look at the verse in verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up. We're immediately thinking of chapter 6, right? I saw the Lord. You remember that? Do you remember? Turn back there. Let's, let's look at this with our own eyes. I can quote it for you. I've done it several times and you have done it as well. But turn back to chapter 6. Chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And he said, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am undone. I've come apart. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now, that was Isaiah's call. Remember at the introduction to the introduction and then the introduction to Isaiah? That's his call, foreshadowing the entire book for us that this is what God is about. That's where we first meet him and his glory in chapter 6. And that language, back in chapter 57, verse 15, turn back there, that language, the one who is high and lifted up, reminds us of that character, but in Isaiah's um, writing, it also reminds us of what that God with that character is in the business of doing. And that's redeeming people from their sin, making them holy, and he does it through the gift and work of his servant. So this keeps us anchored in the whole message of Isaiah He is transcendent. He is high and lifted up. He is above us. He is other than us. He is separate from us. His character is different. His his thinking is different. His words are different. His ways are different. The perfection of his perfections sets him apart from all of his creation. But because he did create us, he did create the world and everything in it, he has the right to rule. And he has the right to run the world as he see fits. He has the right to do everything that he chooses to do because he will never violate his character. And he is other. But it continues, who inhabits eternity, the ESV said. I I wish that wasn't translated like that. This has the idea. If we say he inhabits eternity, some might be um, tempted to think that he is within time, that he is is inhabiting eternity, and that's all. He's, He's bound up by this. But it's, it's a phrase that's conveying that he lives forever. He is eternal. He was not created. He has always been, and he always will be, and he never changes. He inhabits eternity because he is the one who lives forever, forever. Maybe, maybe dwells eternally. The word inhabits is the same word in dwell as dwell in the next verse, and I think that's intended to parallel for us. He dwells forever, eternally. But his name also, whose name is holy. Now that's Isaiah's word for God, isn't it? That the perfection of his perfections, the total absence of sin, the brightness and glory of his character, what drives all of his character is holiness. And so we're seeing him transcendent, which is is different from us. It's above us. It's separated from us. He's, He's Uh, He lives forever. We were created. Now, we will live forever from our creation, but we have not been self-existent. It is the God of the universe who is self-existent, and he is also holy. We are not. That, That unholiness separates us from God. And even if Adam had never sinned in the garden, he would not have been God. He he was still separate from God, a creation of God. As Luke was talking about this morning, we're created in the image of God, but we are not God. Look on further. I dwell in the high and holy place. Another way of saying that he is high and lifted up. So this God is transcendent. He's different from us. He is worthy of our worship. 
because he has created us. And he is the perfection of all his characteristics. And we would think that the next line would be, so do not come near. And we see that in scripture some, right? That was Isaiah's response, was it not? I am undone. I am completely destroyed because he is holy and I am a sinner. And I'm not only a sinner, but I am from a people that are sinners, full of unclean lips. His first instinct is to withdraw from the brightness and perfection of God's character. But what we find, and look how simply we just glide into this. Look at your text. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also, I also dwell, is how we can read that, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also dwell with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So he who is other, unapproachable, dwells with those of us who are broken. He dwells with those of us who are aware of our sin and looking to him to deal with that. This word for contrite, it's probably better translated crushed. 16 of the 19 times it's used in the Old Testament, the ESV translates it crushed, one time as humbled, two times as broken in pieces, and then here, twice, as contrite. So sometimes we can get the wrong idea with contrite, but this is a brokenness. This is a shatteredness, broken into pieces. So those who are broken into pieces, who are, who are crushed and lowly in spirit, those who are aware of their sin and brought low, in their spirit, those who are brought low because of their sin. Now, this isn't just some false uh, humility here. This is the humility that God sees and recognizes because he knows the hearts of men and women. But he dwells with them with the purpose. They're broken. They're, they are lowly in their spirit. They are humble. Now, this isn't just speaking about our character here. This is speaking about our response to our sin. This is what happens. When we talk about repentance, we're talking about this, aren't we? We're not talking about I'm sorry. We're talking about before the God of the universe being broken and low because of our sin, as James said, waiting for him to exalt us at the proper time. There is nothing we can do without God. When, when we are repentant before him, there's nothing we can do. We lay before him, we plead with him to act, and we wait on him to act in mercy for, to, toward us. And he does. Look at the last phrase in verse 15. He dwells with the contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So he's here to give life, is he not? He's to revive them. They thought they had life before, but they were in their sin. And when God humbles them and breaks them before him and they respond to him in that way there's something that he is doing we're going to learn what that is and you can see that we've moved into this second um, blessing the first blessing is the righteous ones who take refuge in Yahweh receive the blessing of God himself who prepared their way who is transcended who's imminent but they also receive the blessing of life because he comes to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So he's not just dwelling with us and waiting for us to mess up again. He's dwelling with us to give us life and to revive us because of something. Now, what is that something? Is this the Kmart special day? Well, you did it on the right day, so I'm going to dwell with you, but be careful because a special may end up leaving you sometime. 
There's something else that's going on. Look at verse 16. What does it start with? For. So we have seen this command in verse 14 to build up, to prepare the way, to remove the obstruction from my people's way. For gives God's character. For it gives his character as being em- or transcendent but also eminent to be with us. And he's with us for a purpose and that is to revive us, to give us life. For, the argument continues in verse 16. This next le- the next blessing is that we receive the blessing of mercy. For, verse 16, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. So here we see our parallelism. We're stating the same thing in a different way. The word contend has to do with that law court mentality. I'm not going to stand against you forever, nor will I be angry forever, nor will I always be angry. We read that earlier in our call to worship in Psalm 109. But I want you to go back there, or 103. I want you to go back there. Keep your finger in Isaiah 57 and turn to Psalm 103. Beginning in verse 6. The psalmist and Isaiah are in complete and total agreement. (laughs) Yahweh works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. So he's not silent. Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever, nor does he deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward us, toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so Yahweh shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God knows us. He knows that we cannot stand against him on our own. And he knows we cannot take him standing against us forever. Back in Isaiah 57, I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. And we're going to have further description. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. And that breath is plural there. So he's talking about human beings can't stand before me when my wrath is against them. And the wrath that we see God have now is nothing like the wrath that we will see on the day of judgment. Because there is still long suffering in his character as well. And he's delaying. Remember, that was the reason that he took his people to task um, the ones who were sinning in the last section in verse 11. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me? Did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I have not exercised my full wrath against you. I have been patient towards you and it did not draw you as it should have to fear me. This is the difference between those who will be saved and those who will stay lost. Is that when God is patient toward them, they realize his patience and it draws them to repentance for their sin. Because no one could stand before him in verse 16. Though the righteous sin, God relents when they repent. Look at verse 17. 
because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. Now, this unjust gain could be something like we already learned about um, in, in chapter 56. The dogs who have a mighty appetite, they are, never have enough. The shepherds, they have no understanding. They're constantly after their own gain. We've been shown this forever. Of, of the, one of the marks of idolatry is to never get enough stuff all the way through Isaiah that we have seen this. And that could be what it means. This could be just a, a, a phrase talking about their idolatry. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. Remember what we learned in chapter 8? The warning was, if he is your stumbling block, he will hide. If Yahweh is your stumbling block, a stone of stumbling, he will hide his face from you. But he reveals himself to his people. The way is built up. Isaiah 40, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And this is the road that has been prepared for those people who will come to faith in Christ. He was angry. He did hide his face. And even when he did that, but he went, the, the men went on backsliding in a way, in the way of his own heart. Now, the next verse we intend to see is, and so I stayed angry. Isn't that what you would do? I've been long suffering. I've been gentle. And you're still sinning against me. So I'm not going to change until you change. But God doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say that he's going to remain angry. Though the righteous sin, God will heal them when they repent. Look at verse 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. He's seen the sin, the backsliding. He's seen the, seen the iniquity of unjust gain, the, the lack of repentance. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, everyone who is mourning with him, creating the fruit of the lips. So God acts to grant repentance to his people. And you say, well, Rob, it doesn't say that. It just says men were sinning and he decided not to hold them accountable. But this is the whole context, is it not? We're talking about those who are contrite and lowly of spirit. Those who have been broken by their sin. Those who have laid low before God, recognizing their sin in response to God and his work. They haven't done anything to deserve healing. And even the contrite heart is a gift of God. We know this, right? In our theology, repentance is a gift from God. He grants repentance. We don't just, you don't get saved because you're smarter than the other person and know what repent means and so you do it. You get saved because God has granted you repentance and saving faith. And you exercise that saving faith. We just read that, in, Jay just read that for us in Ephesians chapter 2. So the repentance is all through this context because it's all through in Isaiah. This is what the prophet does over and over and over, is calls, God, calls the people to repentance so that they experience the presence, the blessing, the gift of God, and that all the nations come to the mountain because they see God in his people. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Now, the fruit of the lips here could be repentance, 
But I also think it could be and probably is creating the fruit of the lips of praise, like Hebrews 13 uses the idea that the fruit of the lips of uh, fruit of our lips should be praise. Because we have received this mercy, we received this grace, we've done nothing. We were lost in our sin and God invaded our life with, with a regenerated heart. He changed us so that we would respond to him. He gave us those gifts so that we would respond to him. He gave us the gift of faith so that we would respond to him in that gift and he would save us. This is all about God. And you say, so I do nothing? No, no. If you do nothing and you don't fall before him and repent of your sin, you will have nothing to call upon but your idols on that day. And they will fail you. You have to have Christ standing for you. Look at verse 19. Peace, peace, another double word for us to show us that this is bookending our phrase from build up, build up, because that road leads to peace, peace. And notice the language, to the far and to the near, says Yahweh, and I will heal him. Now, Jay read for us earlier from Ephesians chapter 2, and if we would continue in Ephesians chapter 2, the very next verses begin like this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, You once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, that's the church, in place of the two, that is Jew and Gentile, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The next section of Ephesians that I just read tells us exactly this. Those who were far off, the Gentiles. Those who were near, the Jews. What separates them, what separated them, God has overcome because the obstacle has been removed because Christ has come. And it's in Christ that we are united in one family. Now, the important part of this is that if we are believers today, remember this whole setting is life in the world. Life in a world that is full of sin. Life in a world that looks like it's out of control. God is still doing this today in this world. 
He is drawing men and women to himself for his glory. He is building his church. He is advancing his kingdom. Even as he's taken the righteous out, even as the influence of the righteous wanes, that is all judgment, God being faithful to his covenant promises, but at the same time, he's redeeming a people for himself because nothing thwarts the sovereign God from doing what he set out to do. And Isaiah is bringing this as the encouragement. If you find your rest in him, this is what he's about. Now, let me tell you, this is how we come to faith, right? Because this talks about God's anger, his wrath, right? And his wrath is upon all men until they come to Christ. When they come to Christ, his wrath has been placed on Christ for them, on their behalf, in place of them. So there is one sense this is talking about salvation, but there's another sense. If we go back through the whole text, this is the way God deals with us in discipline, isn't it? It's not his wrath, it's his love, and it's still recognizing when we sin. It is still placing us in positions to understand the consequence of our sin and paying the price for that sin in the world, not spiritually and eternally, because if we are in Christ, there's no condemnation, right? So, but it is the way he disciplines us, according to the book of Hebrews, that he, when he sees us going astray, because believers, listen, I know you probably don't do this, but believers can sin. Amen? Amen. Can we tighten that a little bit? Believers sin. Can we make it even more tight? You sin. I sin. And while we're doing that, God is still advancing his kingdom. God is not losing one that, Jesus is not losing one that the Father gave him. But Jesus, God is disciplining us in this world by revealing to us our sinfulness and bringing us back because Christ died for sin. Christ died for sinners. That short, compact view of the gospel. So this same passage directs us, not just in our salvation, but reminds us this is the way we live every day as well. We go off on our own way, but listen, when we're crushed over that, how can God accomplish this? How can God just say, you were sinners, you didn't listen to me, but I brought you to myself anyway? Because not only we were crushed, but the Savior was crushed. It was Yahweh's pleasure to crush the servant, to break him in pieces. And since it was his pleasure to do that, to bring us life, that's the entrance into being in union with Christ, is for us to be crushed over our sin. And then we turn, place our faith and trust in Christ, repenting of that sin, truly walking away from it, and placing our faith in Christ so that now peace, peace is ours. Now, it's not ours perfectly yet, is it? We live in a world overcome by sin, and we are going to bring consequences on ourselves. I mean, this is all we're learning about in Luke's class, right? How to avoid those consequences by understanding the scriptures and applying them to ourselves and to each other. So that's going to happen, but there is still peace, peace, because that is final. So my call to you today is to come to Christ. It is to recognize that God has been patient with you. If you are not yet a believer, he's being patient with you. If his wrath was fully placed upon you, you would not still be living. You would be dead. So he's being patient. 
So now's the time to come to him. Now's the time to turn to him because he's revealing to you now your sin and he is breaking you of that sin. He is crushing you of that sin and you need to wait on him to act by praying to him and saying, I repent of that sin. I repent of my misunderstanding, my lack of knowledge, being, being not on the wall, on the wall, being the watchman of my own life, my own idolatry, my own dependence, everything I thought I was clinging to, my own self-sufficiency. I turn away from all of that and I now rest in you. And when you do that, the promise is calling out to him and trusting him that he will save you. And then the peace, peace is yours forever. Even in the midst of a crazy world, even if this world causes your death because of evil, that is not outside the purview of God because he takes his people home in peace and in rest. Now, this, this is what all of us have done if we've been saved. And this is what all of us do every single day. Repent of our sins and trust in the finished work of Christ. Now, we're, in a moment, we're going to bring some young men up who have made that same profession. They have made the profession of faith, that, and they will tell you this, that they have turned from their sins and they have rested in Christ. They've trusted in Christ. And so when we come to the baptistry, these waters don't do anything, right? No, nobody is lost on that step and saved when they come back out. The waters are the testimony of what has happened to them. The waters are the testimony that they have died to their sin in Christ and they have been risen to new life. And that's the picture that we bring. This is the painting of the gospel visually, that we died to our sins, but we are in Christ and he raises us up to new life. And they're going to come and tell you about that, but this is what they have done because God is sovereign and drawn them unto himself. Have they chosen to do this? Absolutely. They have. They've chosen because God has regenerated them and brought them to this point. And so we rejoice with this. So I'm going to pray, and they're going to come forward, and then we're going to hear their testimony and baptize them and rejoice with them. Because this, this is why we preach, is it not? This is why we teach, is to see people come to faith in Christ by repenting of their sin, the kingdom advanced, and most of all, God being glorified in our midst. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the truth of your word, the power of your word, even in the mouth of a, of a fallible and feeble preacher, Lord, we are thankful that your word soars into our hearts through the power of the Spirit. And we ask this morning that we would be the people who walk in this world with full understanding, knowing that even though it's evil and seems to be getting more evil, that you are not out of control, that you are sovereign, that you are high and lifted up, you are the high and holy one who resides in the heavenly places, but you also reside with your people, that you have cleared the way, you have made the way for your people to be in your presence. And you are doing both of those at the same time because you are other than us, it, it, it staggers our mind to try to comprehend your character and all that you are doing. But your word reveals it, and we meditate upon it, and we dwell upon it so that it changes us, and it raises our affections for you, and it raises the, the power of the gospel on our tongue, and it raises our pursuit of holiness because we learn more and more and more about your character and your work. 
So as we come now with these young men, we pray, Father, that you would um, continue to bless us as we worship, but also that their testimonies would bring you glory today. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.